Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. My first conscious engagement with the Civil War that I can remember was when in seventh grade we were assigned the novel Across Five Aprils. My first conscious engagement with a black African-American was a girl named Crystal Roach, who I learned later was one of several people bused from an economically challenged New Haven neighborhood to my nearly lily-white suburban elementary school in Woodbridge, Connecticut. And just returned from a fascinating, illuminating, crushing and in many ways, rather extraordinary trip with our community, with Beth Am to the south. I am now nearly 40 years later, reconsidering what those encounters with a war and with a person really meant and how they were lacking. Now, I have not read Across Five Aprils since seventh grade, so I have no idea if my memory of it is accurate. But I remember the basic plot to be about a family with sons who fought on opposite sides of the Civil War. As a seventh grader, one of the poignancies of the narrative did impact me. But perhaps I was oblivious to the poignancy that should have suffused any study of that material. I remember this being a novel about brother against brother, a family divided. Civil War as its own detached horror, one that puts one brother in a position to have to violate his family commitment in order to fulfill his military, a national one. And as a sibling and as someone who loved my family, that story pierced my heart. And yet I have zero recollection of the novel itself or of our discussion of it in class being about the essential thing that the war was about slavery, and the centuries-old dispossession, enslavement, dehumanization, and brutalization of Africans ripped from their homes in order to serve white men in the New World. In Hebrew, we would say, Ikar min hasefer. The main point was missing from the book. So my first encounter with the Civil War was denuded of the principal incivility of the conditions that created that war. And I wonder if your schooling was similar or different. I remember that Crystal stood out in our school because she was black. And she was, for most of us, Woodbridge kids, the first black person we had ever met personally. I never once thought about what that experience was like for her. If I'm honest, there's a good chance that my eight-year-old self was unkind to her at some point. Perhaps even in a way that in retrospect would be seen as borderline racist. Kids notice things. They are aware of obvious distinctions and skin color is an obvious distinction. Kids say things. I'm sure that was a part of what took place in that third grade classroom. But I don't think it was the dominant thing that took place. I think for the most part, Crystal was a classmate of mine. 
and mostly nothing more or nothing less. So my first encounter with race went right to the heart of the debate still raging today. When identity politics wages battle with forces that invite us to try to transcend race. Dr. King's dream that his children be judged not by the color of their skin, but rather the content content of their character is wielded by both sides of this ideological battle. With one saying that the conditions are not yet right. Not yet a sufficient disassembling of the racist history and structures that formed the involving United States of America for us to think that we can be beyond race. And another side saying that the way to get beyond race is to get beyond race. I think of Mrs. Shapiro's class at Beecher Road School and Crystal and our interactions. I didn't really know enough to know what her dark skin said inevitably about her family's history, about the very way her ancestors almost certainly arrived to these shores. Maybe that was how it should be. My innocent and also uninformed self essentially rejecting identity politics before the phrase became a phrase. She was just a classmate. Isn't that the goal, Dr. King? Or maybe it was an erasure as well. An unconscious, non-willful erasure, but an erasure nonetheless. That I looked at her face and her skin, and I didn't see shackles, I didn't see her ancestors on a plantation. I didn't see how parts of my white American comfort, which certainly is due in many ways to the doggedness and vision of my own ancestors who came to these shores under great duress and with great obstacles in front of them, but was also due in some inherited way to the very healthy economy that had as its origins the oppressive labor of perhaps this young girl's great-great-grandparents. Race and American history is complex, which is what made this trip so hard and so important. Now, the trip was lots of things. It was spending Shabbat at a joyful, active, conservative synagogue in New Orleans. It was visiting and momentarily bringing life and song to old but nearly dying shuls in Natchez and Vicksburg and Selma. And it was opening our pores as Americans and Jews and letting the full story of the American South penetrate our consciousness without barriers. That included the Whitney Plantation, which I likened to a visit to Auschwitz or Majdanek, telling the story of the place from the perspective of the oppressed and the murdered, not of the genteel antebellum Southerners. It's a brutal visit, appropriately, And the trip included the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery telling Rosa's story of how a young woman who would not get up got so many others up in Holy Revolution. And the Legacy Museum from slavery to incarceration alongside the National Memorial Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is colloquially referred to as the lynching memorial, which to me sort of serves as this country's Yad Vashem, telling an overwhelmingly comprehensive and unvarnished story of the experience of slavery, 
the terrible inadequacies of Reconstruction, the era of Jim Crow and lynchings, and leading to the civil rights movement, and reinforcing how much of modern America in ways we don't want to think about are linked to this bloody and shameful history. And this trip also included the Old Oaks Cemetery in Selma, home to the grave of a former U.S. Vice President, hundreds of Jews in their own section, the grave of at least one black person, Benjamin Turner, who amazingly went from slave to being the first black member of the United States House of Representatives, and also home to a Confederate circle with a tribute to Nathan Bedford Forrest, a co-founder and first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, and home to dozens of Confederate flags dotting the aesthetically beautiful cemetery, and plaques telling the story of the War of Northern Aggression or the war between the states, alongside the need to preserve Southern cultures and sensitivities. Again, our kaleidoscopic and magnificent and in many ways miraculous country, which did indeed fight and won a war to emancipate slaves, and which indeed does remain a beacon of freedom in a world which seems to lack more of that freedom every week that goes by, our country is fraught and its history is painful to encounter when all of the prisms and the isms are stripped away and all you have are the raw facts. Now, as many of you know, I spend the overwhelming majority of my time from the bima, from the pulpit, teaching Torah, the tradition, and steering away from raw punditry. I'm not a scholar of American history, per se. I don't return from this trip an expert in any of this. But I've been a solemn witness, and so I choose today to use this pulpit to share what it is that I witnessed and how a Jew who seeks wisdom in our ancient text might continue to think about these very ideas. What does Torah say about partial and sanitized narratives? What does Torah say about the pathway to learning and redemption? A lot, actually. I would say that the Torah celebrates full, unedited stories of what actually happened. And the Torah would say that the pathway to liberation, reconciliation, and growth goes through the darkest muck of our history. The most dangerous rebellion against Moses and God comes from Korach. We'll read it in a few months. His rebellion is put down. God's authority is restored. The wicked get their due. But the story and all of its ugly brutality is not forgotten. It's actually consecrated. God tells Moshe as the embers of the conflagration representing Korach's defeat are still smoldering. God says, The fire pans of those sinners, Hammer them into sheets and put them on the altar. They are sacred and they will serve as a reminder. The Israelites' Israelites' relationship with God will go right through the story of some Israelites' rejection of God. The full story will be told, and the darkest parts of it will be adjacent to the holiest ritual place that exists. CTT, critical Torah theory, if you will. Earlier in the story, we learned that parts of the Mishkan, God's home on earth, 
were made using the mirrors that Israelite women took with them out of Egypt. There are two main midrashic interpretive thrusts explaining this detail. Some say these mirrors were holy, as it was with these mirrors that the women, even when enslaved, they wooed their husbands by showing coquettish, teasing faces in the reflection, thus resisting the culture of death by eking out of it love and new life. But others say the mirrors were symbols of vanity, the very vanity of paganism that informed and undergirded the culture of slavery that trapped them. In that read, it would have been a relief and unshackling to discard those freighted objects and build sacred life from scratch. But no, the symbols of their degradation became an essential piece of future sanctification. And in our Parsha Shmini, a similar theme emerges. I'm so taken by a commentary in the Parsha by Rabbi Aviva Richman of the Hadar Institute. She reminds us that while Shmini focuses on Aaron and his role in the eight-day ceremony to consecrate the new tabernacle, the story does not take place in a vacuum because nothing does. In fact, when did we last see Aaron, Moshe's brother? The last time we saw Aaron was at the golden calf, the Egel Hazahav. And since we saw him carousing and sinning and sullying the name of God, he's been absent in the story until he's invited to offer the inaugural sacrifice in the Mishkan. And what is the sacrifice he is asked to offer? An egel, of course, a calf. As if to say that the road to the proper performance of God's will must trace with haunting specificity the most improper way a Hebrew ever related to God. This time the structure and setting in which Aaron will make the sacrifice are exactly as God wants it to be. But as he stands in his public role, he's reminded with uncanny overlap of how derelict, how broken, how unforgivable, and how damaging the path has been to this moment, including his direct role in it. I'm challenged and inspired by this interpretation. The interpretation does not endlessly blame Aaron for the golden calf. He is in this scene a respected leader, an elder, the father of every future priest. But it does implicate him in his past and force him to reckon with it without cleaning it up too much. We Americans are going to have to go through yet more darkness in order to find our national light. As with all things reduced to slogans and acronyms, there is nothing simple about how history is taught in our country. Some people see CRT, critical race theory, for some of its flaws, for ways in which it seems to suggest that every white person, no matter how that person's family came to this country, that person's origin story, is walking through American life as in a conceptual coffle, conceptually shackled to the sins of the white men who led black men, women, and children in physical coffles, shackling them to slavery for generations. Some people see too many facile associations within critical race theory to the dangerous aspects of intersectionality, which inevitably makes an enemy of the Jew, the Israeli, and the Zionist. But others say that the words, just the words, a critical race theory, ramify way beyond the hackneyed initials 
And they're about confronting our own history honestly, without defensiveness. Studying and teaching history this way is the ideological cousins to Korach's firepans and idolatrous mirrors hammered into the Mishkan and to Aaron's return to esteemed leadership being by means of his own tour through his devastating sinfulness. When I was at the Whitney Plantation, I purchased the book, The Half Has Never Been Told. It was written by Cornell professor Edward Baptist, and its title, its half has never been told, stems from testimony offered by a former slave, Lorenzo Ivey, as part of a WPA program initiated by FDR to collect the narratives of former slaves before they were all deceased. There is a half of American history that still to this day, among well-meaning, non-consciously racist, generally ethical and compassionate and educated Americans, that has never been told fully. This book, which is not without its controversy and critiques, tries to tell it. I'm only just diving into it. But one of its notions is worth sharing here. And that is the decades-old American fetishization of the notion that slavery was a uniquely southern, regional, parochial enterprise, disconnected from the larger, grander arc of the evolution of the United States of America. Baptist makes the argument that at the very least, and it's just the very least, no cotton garment, no tobacco product, no tea sweetened with sugar, was removed at any distance from the scourge of chattel slavery and that that association remains true today even as economies have been transformed and reborn. But that's just the beginning. In his words, quote, the practices of white enslavers rapidly transformed the southern states into the dominant force in the global cotton market. And cotton was the world's most widely traded commodity at the time. The returns from the cotton monopoly powered the modernization of the rest of the American economy. And by the time of the Civil War, the U.S. had become only the second nation to undergo large-scale industrialization. In fact, slavery's expansion shaped every crucial aspect of, aspect of the economy and politics of the new nation, increasing its power and size. The idea that the commodification and suffering of forced labor of African Americans is what made the United States powerful and rich is not an idea that people are necessarily happy to hear. Yet it is the truth. Close quote. In other words, the very thriving and wealth of an America that was able to welcome and absorb so many of our own ancestors as they came searching for their own freedom of oppression was built literally and figuratively on the backs of those suffering indescribable oppression. That is not our fault. It is not our guilt. We were not the perpetrators, but we are inheritors. And we must, as Jews and Americans, gild our altars to God and to goodness and to freedom with those terrible truths. We are in many ways a wonderful, admirable society. And we are not not out from under that cloud. The DNA of our nation's original sin remains in this organism. And we can disagree as to the extent. But not, I don't think, 
about the concept itself. There's no way, of course, to wrap this up neatly. I'm still in the nascent stages of digesting my own experience. I'm not even 50 pages into the first book I committed to read as a result of my travels. And who knows? Perhaps Across Five Aprils is a wonderful historical novel. And perhaps it goes deeper into the issues than I can remember. Who knows? Perhaps Crystal Roach, wherever she lives these days, has pleasant memories of elementary school, of being treated essentially as a classmate. Who knows? Perhaps the greatest honor I can give to the next black African-American face I look into is to see them as I see myself, a human being, a child of God, an American, a person deserving of respect and love, independent of skin color and ancestry and personal history. And who knows? Maybe the greatest honor I can give to such a person is to look into his or her eyes and discern the centuries of tears that accumulate in that person's inherited memory and see not only that person, free by law and hopefully by circumstance, but see also a descendant of slavery and lynching and disenfranchisement and never being quite allowed to just be. Just as I would want a non-Jew to see in my eyes not only a full human, but also the ashes of the Holocaust and the suffering of the Inquisition and the misery and tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the very heaviness of being a Jew that we claim as part of our inheritance. Who knows indeed? But in order to try to know, you have to listen and explore and study and be willing to build future sanctuaries and societies out of the instruments of the processes that once weighed them down and whose stain remains visible. It is from such darkness and only such darkness that light will ever emerge. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.